0: Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com.
1: Support for NPR and the following message come from Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen.
2: Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and. Always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show.
3: Those who survived the bombs and airstrikes are now dying a slow, painful death from the famine, from the lack of medical care, from lack of basic life necessities.
2: Hunger and malnutrition in Gaza. It's Friday, March 1st, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, we'll hear from a Marine Corps veteran who says the recent self immolation of a U.S. Airman is part of a long tradition of anti war protests members of the military. We'll also take a break from some otherwise heavy news today and listen to a conversation our own Kalyani Saxena had with three of the biggest romance novelists working today about the genre's enduring appeal
4: and its voracious fans. The fan base and, and the people who read romance have not changed. They are still voracious, rabid will kick your butt. Oh,
5: 100%.
4: (laughs) Readers, just like they were in the early 90s. But first, Palestinian doctors report
2: many of the victims of yesterday's deadly incident at an aid convoy in Gaza City suffered gunshot wounds, suggesting heavy shooting by Israeli troops. More than 100 people died, and more than 700 were wounded as they crowded around a delivery of desperately needed food. Israeli soldiers say they fired warning shots to clear a path for the aid trucks, and that many of the people killed were not shot, but trampled in a stampede. The desperation on display yesterday is further evidence of the deepening crisis of hunger in Gaza, something that Dr. Fazia Alvi witnessed when she was treating people there last month. She's head of the medical relief organization Humanity Auxilium. We reached her at her home in Calgary, Canada, and she spoke to Deepa Fernandez.
3: The
6: UN warned this week that a quarter of people in Gaza, that's half a million people, are on the brink of famine. You worked mainly in the south near Rafa in clinics set up there in refugee camps, and you said you saw a lot of hunger in your patients.
3: Tell us what you saw. I will focus... uh... Um, more on the severity of the malnutrition I saw in Rafah, which is the southern part of Gaza, where some aid has had trickled in, but it's beyond my comprehension to envision the dire situation in northern Gaza, where they have been entirely isolated. As someone who has worked in the refugee camps in the past, never before I have seen such a severe degree of malnutrition in population. Everyone was hungry. I treated children with bored legs because they had developed rickets from vitamin D deficiency. Every single Gazan I met looked frail and thin, and their pale skin still haunts me when I'm eating at home as I'm back home. I saw Mm. severe muscle wasting in small children. It was horrifying to see.
6: And you say that your clinics were having to use IV fluid to feed patients.
3: Yeah, you know what? Malnutrition was so evident. You know, it's a, it's a simple pinch between thumb and index finger was sufficient to see the extent of malnutrition in children, giving the absence of muscle and the prominence of the bones and skin. And I found it quite ironic that the humanitarian aid that did make it inside had hundreds of dextrose IV fluids. Is it sugar water? So we are depriving people of food in Gaza. Only to subject them to survival through needle injections.
6: We've read, uh, Doctor, that hunger is so desperate, people have been eating grass or, or even animal feed. How does that impact the human body?
3: eating grass or, you know, grinding the rabbit food to use as a flower. That's what we heard from lots of our patients that we were treating, lots of our staff and doctors who have their family in northern Gaza. We did not see it with our eyes in southern part of Gaza. But I see that the lethal combination of hunger and disease in Gaza right now, due to the complete absence of all basic necessities, is exacerbating the situation. Children who are hungry they are profoundly traumatized, are at high risk of falling ill and dying. So those who survived the bombs and airstrikes are now dying a slow, painful death from the famine.
6: Doctor, how long can the human body sustain a lack of food and water? What are we looking at here now that this has been going on for months?
3: You know, I personally witnessed one child during my short stay in Gaza and uh, it was imminent that he will die in a day or so. I feel sad because I feel that it's evident. And if we do not do anything, the international community does not give them aid, does not open the border, then they will die soon. Yeah, they cannot wait for us, for our talks and our negotiation. We need to give them food today, not tomorrow.
6: And doctors, is as simple as getting trucks in with food to get to people?
3: Yes, I have seen thousands of trucks. Literally, we filmed it. We saw it going to Rafah before entering to Gaza. There were literally thousands of humanitarian aid trucks. They are lined up at the border, which are blocked from entering Gaza. And we had children literally wasting from hunger while there is food a few meters away, but out of reach because Israeli government has refused to lift the blockade. The lack of access to clean water and food in addition to the continued bombing of the Gaza Strip is simply an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe. I'm not a human rights lawyer. I'm not a politician. But as a doctor, as a mother, as a a physician, as a human being, it is horrifying to see that we have children literally dying from hunger just a few meters away while the aid is sitting on the other side. If it is not a genocide, then I do not know what else a population can be subjected to.
6: Mm. Dr. Fazia Alvi is just back from Gaza. She's a physician in Calgary and founder and president of the medical relief organization Humanity Auxilium. Dr. Alvi, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we should note that while tens of thousands of Palestinians have been killed as a result of the ongoing war... The International Criminal Court of Justice has not yet said Israel is committing genocide. It has said Israel needs to prevent a
2: genocide. We've got a lot more about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, including an interview earlier this week with the head of Save the Children at hereandnow.org. After the break... Deepa hears from a veteran turned anti-war activist about protests within the U.S. military against America's support for Israel. Stick around.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. A warning. Parts
6: of this next interview discuss self-immolation and may be hard to listen to. Aaron Bushnell died on Sunday after lighting himself on fire in front of Israel's embassy in Washington, D.C., he was 25. He live-streamed his protest, and before he self-immolated, he said he would no longer be complicit in genocide. As he burned, he yelled, free Palestine. Bushnell was an active duty member of the U.S. Air Force, and Ramon Mejia is a Marine Corps veteran and a member of About Face Veterans Against the War, an anti-war advocacy group. He's here to talk about Aaron Bushnell. Ramon is joining us from Dallas. Ramon Mejia, welcome to Here and Now. Aaron Bushnell self-immolated in uniform. What did you think when you heard about this devastating act?
7: When I first learned of Aaron's uh, self immolation, my reaction was one of shock. Um, and like many others, I searched out for more details to make sense of it. And as uh, more information came out, I learned of Aaron's last words of who he was and what, you know, that he was wearing a uniform. And I understood, you know, I grieve the loss of Aaron Bushnell and honor his profound protest and sacrifice, just as a, a, as a woman who self immolated with a Palestinian flag uh, outside the Israeli consulate in Atlanta this past December. You know, both acts were in defiance of the U.S.'s enabling of Israel's genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. Self-immolation has deep roots in the history of resistance movements, from the Arab Spring to anti-war movements in the 1970s to the climate crisis. You know, individuals have taken this extreme act of protest to say enough is enough. And to be clear I don't promote it but I understand and I call out to others who feel strongly about resisting US involvement in the genocide of Palestinians you know to join us we we desperately need you alive in the struggle and looking f- you know we're looking for you you know let us lay the foundations together for a full life of resistance against all forms of oppression
6: And and we should note that tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians have died as a result of this ongoing war. And that said, the International Court of Justice said Israel needs to prevent genocide, but has not yet said Israel is committing genocide, though Aaron and many, many people do believe it is a genocide. He talked about feeling complicit. I wonder if you can spell that out for us a little more You yourself served in the US military invasion of Iraq in 2003, and then you kind of came out against it. How do you and other members of your organization reconcile your service and your current anti-war beliefs?
7: You know, during my time in Iraq, uh, I conducted resupply convoys throughout the country. You know, I witnessed the havoc that US bullets and bombs waged on people in the land. I and others Many of us were told that our actions were to free the Iraqi people from tyranny, but all I saw was uh, the enormous human, socio-economic, and environmental toll that war and occupation brought. Some of the most vivid memories that I carry with me to this day are from the first days of the invasion. uh, As our column advanced north, Iraqi families, men, women, children, grandparents fled their homes, heading south in search of safety. Similar to the images that we see today in Gaza, Of Palestinian families in the thousands fleeing south in search of safety but find no escape from the u.s supplied bombs and in the years after leaving the marines as well as many of my other friends and fellow veterans in about face I, i sought to process my experience in iraq to really come to terms with what i was a part of you know and i live with the knowledge that my actions contributed to the destruction of life and thus have become an outspoken advocate and organizer against U.S. wars and the growing militarization of our communities.
6: I want to ask you, Ramon, as it pertains to what's happening in Gaza, is is the complicity that you and others feel because the weapons are supplied by the U.S.? You just said U.S. supplied bombs. I'm wondering if that's the complicity because it's not U.S. troops on the ground this time.
7: You know, Aaron took this action in uniform in front of the U.S.-Israeli embassy for a reason. Because the United States is not a passive bystander, but actively facilitating the genocide of Palestinians you know, to show to the world that the, the fire is raging in Gaza. Americans have a responsibility to demand of their government to stop funding and supplying the bullets and bombs used to murder countless of Palestinians.
6: Do you feel like that message is is widely held in the United States armed forces that others like Aaron might be feeling the same thing?
7: Yes, I think that there's many others that feel the same way, uh, both within the bow phase, within the military community, within the veteran community. These attacks have killed over 30,000 Palestinians, you know, 70% of women and children Another 70,000 Palestinians maimed, uh, have been maimed and injured. This administration has attempted to distract from the issue, uh, you know, to pass the buck, to pretend that their hands you know, aren't tied. But the, the cold hard truth is that the, the mass loss of civilian life in Gaza wouldn't be possible without the U.S. support.
6: So your organization, About Face, organizes against, and I'm quoting here, a foreign policy of permanent war and the use of military weapons, tactics, and values in communities across the country. Can you tell us what that mission means?
7: It means that as a, as a community that's intimately familiar with the inner workings of the world's largest military, uh, you know, we use our knowledge and our experiences to expose the truth of, that U.S. wars waged overseas and the growing militarization of our communities here at home are wrong. You know, we understand as veterans of of war that we must radically transform our world. You know, imagine if instead of military recruiters asking you to join this war machine, we were recruiting care workers or into industries of transitioning away from fossil fuels. You know, the United States has the ability to end these harmful relationships and technologies that kill hundreds and millions of people if they had the political will. So our organisation brings our stories together and engages our community to deepen their understanding and knowledge of how militarism impacts both here and abroad.
6: And Ramon, active duty service members aren't supposed to engage in political acts. Yet they have, and, and Aaron did, just how hard is it if if you're if you're a service member or even a veteran for that matter to speak out if you have the feelings that what's happening, what you're being asked to do is is morally wrong, or, or you don't want to do it?
7: There's there's a, a, a one thing that is not allowed to like legally, but I think that the the harder choice in deciding to go against what the society holds up as dear, being within this military. Uh, The fear of being isolated and that your family and friends will will, will turn against you is something that a lot of active duty and a lot of veterans still hold very tightly. It's hard, but there's people and community there waiting to to embrace you, to build with you, to hold you in community, right? If you're a member of the U.S. military and are concerned or have questions, then there are resources out there for you to, to access. You know, call the GI Rights Hotline, speak to expert confidential advisors about the questions that you have and refusing to be complicit. Aaron's call to action was to no longer be complicit with genocide. And we have to answer that call.
6: Ramon Mejia is a Marine Corps veteran, a member of About Face Veterans Against the War. Ramon, thank you so much.
7: Oh, thank you so much, Deepa, for the opportunity. Um, I, I was, its a, it's definitely like a, I'm, uh, I'm feeling like the, the, the rush of emotion right now. And I'm just, you know, I really appreciate like being able to speak and share like the story of, of, of our folks.
6: Yeah, Ramon, I'm so sorry. It is, it's just so hard and you've seen it on the front lines and most of us have not and will never. But I'm oh, so glad that you. you can share your voice because that's how we'll experience it. Thank you. And for more views and analysis of the conflict, go to npr.org slash Middle East. And if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline.
2: the news and this show today, let's face it, have been heavy. So let's take a step back from the headlines now and listen to a conversation my colleague Kalyani Saxena had recently with some of the biggest names in romance novels. It was a fun one. And I'll say, even if you're not into the genre at all, I think you'll find it worth your time. Peter O'Dowd picks it up after the break. Support for
0: NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission.
8: The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes
0: tech strategies. That includes dollar cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
9: That's what happens when you put three romance writers in a room with a bunch of adoring fans. Authors Beverly Jenkins, Jasmine Guillory, and Allie Hazelwood are renowned for steamy love stories that bring butterflies to readers. And as romance explodes in popularity, more people than ever are reaching for their books. Jenkins is one of the genre's only black historical romance writers. She's seen romance go through a lot of changes over the years, but some things haven't.
4: The fan base and, and the people who read romance have not changed. They are still voracious, rabid, <laughs> will kick your butt. Oh, 100%. Readers, just like they were in the early 90s.
9: Jenkins recently joined Guillory and Hazelwood to discuss everything from sex scenes to writing styles. Which, by the way, did you know that someone who writes without an outline is known as a pantser? The three authors spoke with here and now producer Kalyani Saxena at WBUR City Space.
5: I'm glad that we're all here talking about romance, and it seems like we've got a lot of romance fans here. Can you confirm? Yeah, yeah. But I feel like maybe, maybe a few years ago, it, it didn't always feel like this was something people could be excited openly about. But things have started to shift in recent years, and I'm, I'm curious what that has been like from your perspective, and if you kind of have any stories where people have maybe not exactly sneered, but been like, oh, you, you write romance. So Jasmine, why don't we start with you?
10: Um, I mean, I've, de- I've definitely had people ask me, not quite in these words, but sort of yeah. like, when are you going to write a real book? Mm. Um, and, but like, yes, there was definitely some sneering towards romance, but I just don't care. I mean, it's just right. Like, cause like people who love romance are the, the most fun so why should I spend my time like trying to convince someone no you should really eat chocolate instead of eating celery all day long like <laughs> chocolate tastes good have you tried it like <laughs> Yeah. yeah.
5: Exactly. No, I don't
10: want to try it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. sorry you hate fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
5: but Beverly, I know there's a story. I think you were at a Miami Book Fair and oh. someone said something to oh, you, yeah, and you her, really had the ultimate takedown. Her, yeah. So I feel like I have to hear it.
4: Was at the Miami Book Fair, and if anybody's ever been there, it's just a fabulous, fabulous event. Well, the hosts um, provided us a little, like a little van, and. There's a woman there who says, well what do you write? And I said, romance. Oh. Mm. I said, and what do you write? I write literature.
8: <laughs>
4: really?
3: <laughs>
4: I said, so how many books you got in print? Ooh.
5: Bet she didn't want to answer that.
4: She turned bright red. And we never heard from Miss Literature (laughs) again for the rest of the ride. (laughs) Thank you very much. One of the things that we
5: have to talk about is... Well, we don't have to, but I want to. Um, We have to talk about, as the people say, spice in romance, or we could just say sex. Um, And romance novels, I feel like, are some of the only places where you can read sex scenes from the perspective of a woman. And I'm curious about your perspective, you know, having written those scenes and maybe seen um, the readers' responses to that. Beverly, do you want to start?
4: You know, it's basically the only genre where women get to decide their own sexuality, where we get to embrace our own sexuality. And that's a powerful thing. Yeah. Which is why a whole lot of people hate it. <laughs> you know, they say, well, you make, romance makes you, you know, it's it's unrealistic. Mm-hmm. What is unrealistic about wanting a partner who supports your dreams? Yeah who walks with you and not in front of you or behind you. Um, I think we're doing pretty good, you know?
5: Yeah, yeah.
4: I think we're doing them.
5: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Jasmine? What do you think about when you are crafting those kinds of scenes?
10: For me, they they really are about, like, where characters are in the moment in their relationship you know this is a story about two people falling in love with one another and so how are the sex scenes a part of that and I think it's also fun to show like yes like women having pleasure and embracing that and like not being ashamed of it
8: what about you Allie what do you think yeah I mean I agree with everything but I also think that sometimes the sex scenes are uh just there for this matter yeah. and <laughs> I'm totally okay with it.
4: <laughs> Give you filth. <laughs>
5: well, I, I want to talk about diversity. I feel like we have to kind of tackle the elephant in the room. Or not tackle, but maybe gently romance into submission. Um, the genre is, and has been for a long time, a space for whiteness, and was written by white authors and consumed by white readers. And, and we still don't have many black historical romance writers. No, no, just, we don't. And so, just in me. in the
4: <laughs> <laughs> we need you. Well, to... <laughs> well, not really. We got we have Vanessa now.
5: Are there ways that you really wish things would change
10: still?
4: Need more more diversity in editorial. Yeah.
10: yeah. I think, yes, I mean, I think, like, the writers are there. It's really, on the publishing side, having people for whom this is not a, like, they're not saying, like, well, I don't know where we would sell this to, or, you know, because it's, right, editorial, but also the sales team and the marketing team and the publicity team, who both know how to sell the books, but also
4: care about the books in the same way. And, and, you know, and on the editorial side... Um, I had a copy editor. I had the, the phrase was putting something on the down low. Mm. We all know what that means, you know, keep it secret, whatever. Mm. And the copy editor wrote bad grammar. Oh, you should say right. Put it on the sh- low shelf. <laughs> Put it on the low shelf. How <laughs> no, about I don't say that? <laughs> and I wrote in the margin. Reason number 865, <laughs> we need more people of color in editorial. Um, we have a couple of questions about craft,
5: actually. Um, so, okay, I know writing in general, there's people who really like to outline, and I really love to outline, um, and there are writers who are pantsers, and Beverly, I think you might be one of them.
4: I may have a kernel of a story, or a kernel of a character, or I, and if I have to outline and It's like all the energy for me is gone from the story, so um, for me it's organic. I like knowing, not knowing what's going to happen on the next page, just like the reader.
10: Okay, I have a question about that though. You do a ton of research for your books, so how do you you like sort of write and then go back and do the research, or how does that?
4: Research as I go when that, because you know I'm following the characters, right? And they're going to through my head into the swamps of Texas, and I'm like. (laughs) Are there swamps in Texas? Well, are there? And there were. Yeah. There were. <laughs> okay, well, there we go. There were. And it was a part of the story that I didn't even know we were going there. <laughs> and one of the main, main characters was in that swamp.
5: <laughs> yeah. What about you, Allie? What's your uh, writing style, your craft?
8: I am, and this is not my term. I wish I could claim this term, but I can't. Um, I am a panty liner, which means that
5: the panty
8: so the idea of the panty liner is that you need, you have some kind of outline, but then then you feel it in. It's the perfect term.
4: No. I love it. See what happens when you hang around with romance writers.
5: Um, well, one of the questions we've been getting, and this is one I've been saving for the end, I'm curious for each of you what your favorite trope to read is and what your favorite trope to write is, because those might be two different things. Um, Ali, we'll start with you.
8: I really like Fated Mates, uh, um, I, which I know a lot of people hate insta love, but I just, I really, really like when there is uh, some kind of, you know, things that is bigger than the couple that kind of pushes them together. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I, I, I've really enjoyed I only wrote it once uh, yet for Tony Publishing, and I really enjoyed it. And I enjoy reading it.
10: So, yeah. Um, I love fake dating. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Just love it. As I have written a few books that involve dating, including my first, um, and I think it's so fun. And I, I like, I love to read it and write it. But I also really love to read *A Marriage of Convenience*.
5: Oh and yes. in Love. Oh, the best. And it's the best too, because you can fit in so many other tropes. Yeah. Like they're married for convenience and they hate each other. Yeah. Or they're married for convenience and they've been childhood friends. You yeah. know, like it's
8: it's it's, it's so like a
5: Russian things. doll of tropes. I love yeah. it. I love it. Yeah. What they about you, it. Beverly?
4: Marriage or convenience. Mm.
5: Yes.
4: <laughs> I read them. I write them. I love them. Yeah.
5: <laughs> yes. Exactly. And we have one more thing for tonight. It is actually Beverly Jenkins's birthday today.
4: This is what 73 looks like.
5: Thank you for spending your birthday with us. Thank you all for spending Beverly's birthday with
9: us.
4: Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it.
5: Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. We really have had a great time. Thank you.
9: That was Here and Now's Kalyani Saxena speaking with romance authors Beverly Jenkins, Jasmine Guillory, and Allie Hazelwood for WBUR's City Space. The full event is available online at hereandnow.org.
2: That's our show. Here and Now, Anytime comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR in WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Shirley Jihad, Gabrielle Healy, and Kalyani Saxena. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction by Mike Moschetto, Caleb Green, and Michaela Varela. Mike also wrote our theme music along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carleen Watson. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at Rosettastone.com slash NPR. This election season you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out. What's going on around the world and at home? Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts.